Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. Game week for Notre Dame football is almost here. With week zero underway for some college football programs, we'll have actual games to watch this weekend before the bigger games take over next weekend. And there might not be a bigger game on the schedule than the top five matchup between Notre Dame and Ohio State. There will be plenty of national attention on the Irish as there has been throughout much of the offseason. ESPN's Pete Thamel has provided one of those national lenses on Notre Dame and his latest piece will debut on Sunday on ESPN at 8 a.m. Eastern in an SC featured segment called The Rise of Marcus Freeman. Pete, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Tyler and Eric, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate you guys. Pete, how much time did you get to spend with Marcus working on this latest uh, feature on him? So I had uh, gone out there, got it all blends together now. It was either late June or early, maybe it was late July. Um, but we basically kind of tucked down into South Bend for a day. And um, that's how, how much time I spent with him. So I, I was lucky to interview Marcus, Joanna, Chong Freeman, and then uh, Mike Freeman, uh, Michael Sr. And... Um, we were one of those rooms off the stadium. They, they kind of set everything up and I'm new to this TV thing. So it was all very fancy and there was a <laughs> lot of lights. Um, and uh, yeah, it was really, I had interviewed, I had done a long piece for Yahoo. One of the last things I did there um, in December on Marcus. So I was pretty familiar with, uh, with his story and uh, yeah, it was really just sort of a, a delight to have everybody in the same place and to, to just sit down and walk through. I mean, the, the Marcus Freeman story, it, it, when you step back and look at it through the lens of family, is a, a remarkable American story. And uh, his rise has really, uh, is, is really been r- remarkable. And the, we dive into the background of his mother uh, coming from South Korea and then his father being a longtime uh, military man, uh, Air Force man, I think 26, 27 years off the top of my head. And the the, those the, the the blend of those two backgrounds and cultures and how that shaped Marcus to who he is today. So we really set out with the goal of, you know, a lot of America, I'm sure all Notre Dame fans know plenty about Marcus Freeman at this point. But I think if you're, uh, you know, a Notre Dame fan in Virginia or Seattle, or if you're just a football fan saying, who the heck's this young guy who's the new coach at Notre Dame? That's what we really tried to to step back and, uh, and answer for people. Pete, when people talk to me about Mike Marcus and they want their biggest question is how do you think he's going to do his first year? I think long-term I have a much better answer. I have a harder time envisioning what the pitfalls were, the things that he's going to be able to transcend. What about you? What, how did you come away from talking to him in terms of putting it in that box of what he will be like as a first year head coach? It, it's a good question, and it's it's always hard to predict first year head coaches, right? Remember, remember Chip Kelly went to Boise yeah. uh, in his debut, and like uh, Legarrette Blount punched a guy in the face, and it all like spiraled. And Chip Kelly ended up just fine, you know. So like, there's just there's just always variables that you're you're going to have to control. When people ask me like, how will Marcus Freeman do? Uh, I immediately point to recruiting, which I, I'm not telling you guys anything. You don't cover uh, the pulse of day to day, and. Marcus Freeman consistently puts together top five recruiting classes. Notre Dame's going to be really good. Just like Clemson's really good because they do it. And Alabama's really good because they do it. And Georgia just won the national title because they did it. So I think the, the staff he's put together is excellent. I'm very bullish on Al Golden's hire. Uh, 
I was, I've been around long enough because I'm old to have covered Al Golden bringing Temple back from the uh, ashes. Reese Davis made a great point on, on our pod, ESPN podcast this week. He basically said that was Snyder-esque what he did. Like he took a program like Bill Snyder did at K-State, dragged it from there. So I think that there is going to be a consistent identity on offense with Tommy Reese. I don't think a ton changes there. I still think like the quarterback position, it's remarkable to me, guys, how much success Notre Dame has had without a – you know, stand on the table, frontline NFL starter player there. Like, if you look at, like, the best, you know, the top 10 teams from the last five years, I would think a vast majority of them have that thumper, big-time quarterback. And the quarterbacks Notre Dame's had are very good. I'm not knocking them. But, like, in terms of prospects, in terms of, like, the downfield diamondism that, you know, we've seen all of the recent national title winners not named Georgia have, um, Notre Dame hasn't had that. And I, and I still think there's obviously, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know. I still think there's some question marks about that position going into this season. But um, so early on, will there be some mistakes? Sure. Is it going to, is it going to be perfect? No, but I, I really think that, that Marcus Freeman has a, a good solid team with a, with an established identity and a good salty defense to establish himself as a head coach and then grow. Look, there's going to be a transition. I mean, uh, Brian Kelly been a head coach by the time he got to Notre Dame for at least 15 seasons, right? Maybe even a little, a few more than that because one national at Grand Valley, Bennett Central, Bennett Cincinnati, and there, there will be some adjustments. I know Marcus has spent a lot of time like game situations, timeouts, those types of things that, you you know, it's hard for a coach to prepare for until you actually go, uh, go do. Pete, given those questions, do you think Notre Dame has a chance to beat Ohio State? They have a chance. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to – they're, what, 14, 17-point underdogs at this point? I'm not going to, you know, brazenly predict that they will, but there's a pathway to do it, and the pathway to do it is I feel like the two best players in the program are their two tackles, and the interior linemen are very good. And that's how Notre Dame has won a lot of football games, by controlling the clock. They have a great stable of tailbacks, um, running the ball, and, you know, utilizing the best tight end in the country. Um and that's the pathway to control the game and do it. They are not going to beat Ohio State, you know, 49-48. That's just – that's not going to happen. And then they they need to, you know, force a turnover, make something happen on special teams. Like, it's if you're more than two touchdown underdog, you need a pick six. You need a little something to swing the momentum to you. And, uh, you know, they need a little good luck juju. And I, and I don't know if uh, – you know, it's hard to predict that kind of stuff. But I do think, like, they it, do they have a chance to win? Absolutely, they have a chance to win. We all know, especially with openers, there's a lot of overreaction. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering, win or lose, is this game going to really define Marcus Freeman and Notre Dame going forward? Or do you think they're going to learn things and then kind of define themselves as a team deeper into the season? Yeah, I don't think anyone should overreact going to Columbus. And uh, look, if they win, everyone's going to say they can win the national title, right? And if they lose, everyone's going to write them off. And the truth's going to be somewhere in the middle. Like, they, this is when you'd want to lose that game if you're Notre Dame, because there's there's a, there's obviously a long, you know, there, there's a long path back. And after, you know, a, after that game, there's some there's some winnable games right there. I think Marshall comes in and then it's Cal. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the better game to, to – really figure out who Notre Dame is, is going to be the Carolina game or the BYU game. I think BYU is excellent and chronically underrated this year. I, I think Jaron Hall is going to end up being a top 15 type pick. And 
I think BYU is just because they don't have a conference affiliation and, you know, they're not going to have a ton of sexy skill guys. I just think people have overlooked them, but they've been really darn good um, for, you know, they would have been the best team in the Pac-12 last year. Right. So um, I really feel like that is like, okay, who are these guys? Well, can they go, can they go toe to toe and, and battle the BYU in the trenches? Can they go to Carolina? Who's a team that could win three games or nine games, right? Like nobody really knows what you're going to get from them. Um, and, and that's where I think the real identity, you know, you'll see this year is, is this, you know, you can lose in Columbus and still be a playoff team. Pete, why, why, why do you think Marcus Freeman is so successful as a recruiter and can he continue to do it without maybe a more brazen NIL effort from boosters and those around Notre Dame's program? Yeah. Well, the, the NIL part is thorny. I mean, only because like, there's just so much ambiguity uh, surrounding it. Um, look, I, I think if you're going to Notre Dame, it's a little bit like if you're looking at Stanford or Boston college or Duke or a place like that, like you have other, you're not going just for a payment, right? It's the 40 year, 40 year thing that you hear all the time. So uh, Marcus Freeman's gift. And I wrote about this a lot in the, in the Yahoo stories connection. That's really one of his great transcending gifts. Marcus Freeman is a people person and he connects not, you know, he connects especially to players and recruits. And I thought it was very telling in his opening press conference. He said, he's going to be the lead recruiter on every player they, they, they have. And I, I look, you guys follow a lot closer than I do day to day, but I, I feel like he's lived up to that in a, in a lot of ways. And there's been a lot of time and a, and a lot of energy um, spent, um, you know, in, in that department. And it's clearly, it's clearly shown up. So I, I think he'll recruit really well there for a while. Look, every new staff has that early bump, right? And then you got to win. And then you got to, you know, the first two years, you can really take that new energy juice. And then ultimately your results are going to dictate that next phase of it. So, I mean, he has crushed the first phase in recruiting. There's, there's no, there's no question about that. And yeah, like, look, NIL is never going to hurt you, right? <laughs> like, like the more robust it is, the, the better off it's going to be. And, you know, I, I have faith in the Notre Dame brain trust there who's who's led that place out of a pretty dark place in football and, and, and positioned it really well for the future, that, that they're going to have the right NIL plan for a Notre Dame kid. Okay, I'll ask you one a little bit out of left field. Sure. Uh, do you think that at some point during Marcus Freeman's career, he's going to be the Notre Dame head coach and the and a Big Ten head coach simultaneously? <laughs> Um, right now, the way the landscape is, I do not think that, Eric. I okay. do not think that. I think things have fallen really well for Notre Dame for maintaining their independence. Now, there can be two more waves of realignment that change that. But if this holds at a pause, which I'm expecting it to, I would say, you know, nothing's going to happen until it does, right? But if if things stay quiet for the next year or so, or really the next two years. I mean, Notre Dame, it's like almost like a two-year window before decisions really have to start getting made because the playoff decision has to come and what that looks like. And that's looking more and more like 12. And perhaps maybe even, despite some eye rolls from some folks, like it may happen before the end of this current cycle. Like nobody's quite shut the door on that yet. Um, so if there's a 12-team playoff with the access that they were going to have previously, which was, what, six conference champions, six highest-ranked conference champions, and then six at-larges, like, that's great news for Notre Dame. They're going to throw a party over at the uh, Joyce Center there. Um, and then the NBC deal, like, NBC 
getting some Big Ten was great news for Notre Dame, I felt like, because they're, they're no longer an orphan on there those days, right? Like, you can live in Indianapolis and watch NBC and see a, you know, see the Notre Dame game and then see a good Big Ten game um, back-to-back. Uh, and that's going to – that that only is going to – that that is only going to make NBC further interested – in bringing back Notre Dame. And, and I think they're going to go, I, I can't give you a dollar amount, but I think it's going to go at a pretty healthy clip, right? Like um, they're somewhere, you know, around 25 billion a year right now. I'd be pretty surprised if that didn't double. Um, so now what, what it gets to, I don't think it gets to 75 million, but I think that Notre Dame has never been a place that's like lacked money. And I think that's going to continue. So if they are, financially secure like they're not going to go to the big 10 for 10 million extra bucks a year right so if they're financially secure um and they, they, the playoff access is secure i i don't see any reason until one of those things drastically changes that they would uh you know they would join a conference i do get the sense eric that they are enjoying kind of being the prettiest girl on the dance floor right now. <laughs> like that's i think that's uh that you know it's almost been like the best the best advertiser for notre dame football you know, the past two months or however it's been since SC and uh, UCA left has been that Notre Dame is the most attractive. Notre Dame is, it, it's been like the, the greatest brand establishment reminder that they could have. Yeah. It sort of seems like no one has quite figured out the way to force Notre Dame's hand into joining a conference and everyone seems to try to figure out a way to do that, but no one has been able to sort of solve that real yet. Yeah, I think, Tyler, one of the things that – and I made this point in, in print a few times, but I think it's worth stating is, you know, th- this whole thing is becoming SEC versus Big Ten in a lot of ways. And so the SEC has become sort of a improbable ally to Notre Dame in that they're not going to do anything to the landscape to force Notre Dame into the Big Ten because that strengthens their rival. And that – it. so I, I don't see, you know, like – People are like, well, why would they have a playoff? Like, Greg Sankey's not going to agree to a playoff that squeezes Notre Dame to the point where he joins their rival because they're, they're all kind of competing for the same TV dollars in some ways down the, down the road, right? So I just don't see a scenario where that happens. That is one of the ultimate safety nets for Notre Dame is having the SEC as, a, as sort of a, a, an intriguing ally. Um, Pete, uh, the – I think you mentioned in a tweet the other day about, I mean, hinting that the NCAA's time uh, overseeing college football may be, the clock may be ticking on that. If that is true, do you think college football will be better for it? Do you think there will be um, less angst about NIL and things like that and uh, those kind of things going forward if if the NCAA does indeed kind of lose its power over college football? Yeah, interesting question. And my honest answer is I don't know, right? Because mm-hmm. there'd be so many variables that would have to come into play before you could really make, make a bold declaration. I, I do know this, like college football, the, the suits, wherever they may sit, being bowl suites, athletic director's office, commissioner's office, they, no matter how hard they've tried, they have not messed up the game because the game is still awesome, right? <laughs> the, the the eight months of the offseason, it's usually a pretty big slog, right? And you you see a lot of the greed and a lot of the, the stuff that makes you dizzy um, and a lot of the lack of leadership, really. And, you know, again, it's a sport where no one's in charge. So maybe if that move puts someone in charge, we'd have somewhat better results. But 
that gets thorny too because these commissioners aren't seeing any power um nor any salary i can assure you so um is you know does like per se the you know the initial early 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 conversations with the cfp overseeing the sport does you know a lot of the problems transition over right you're not leaving any of the problems behind can you be more nimble in how you handle them you'd hope but yeah. the problems will still remain it's new branding doesn't you know doesn't lead to 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 just the issues magically disappear pete taking a step back as we head into college football games in front of us what what can you identify a team that you think is maybe too overhyped going into the season and and maybe a team that you think is a bit under the radar that might surprise some people. Yeah. Well, I'm skeptical of USC probably like you guys are, cause you actually saw them play last year <laughs> <laughs> and, and you saw what the shell of uh, what was it, what was considered a defense that they, uh, that they rolled out. And I, I think they're an interesting test case because look, they're going to be really talented on offense and they're going to score points, but how can you, you know, how quickly can you get a team, a defense toughness, all the, the stuff that really ends up mattering when you got to go slog out a game in the fourth quarter. Um, so I, I'm like, USC is going to be good. They're going to be much better. But they also gave up, what, 62 to UCLA? Um, Notre, Notre, and, Dame punted, uh, Notre Dame punted once against USC last, yes, last year. Yes. <laughs> and, and Oregon State rolled up 50 on them in the Coliseum, 50-something. So I just, I just think before we start talking about them in the playoff, like, go beat Stanford, who beat you so bad you had to fire your coach last year. Like that – and again – and maybe we all need to disassociate like last year's to this year's because rosters now have the ability to change so dramatically. And, and it's unlike anything we've ever seen. I got a UConn story running this week on ESPN.com. They have 40 of their 82 scholarship players are new. Like that actually couldn't happen <laughs> before this year. So it's, it's just like, I was talking to Bill Connolly, our numbers guy, who's a, who's a great uh, resource and coworker. And, you know, he, one of his big things is he predicts results based on past production. And there's teams where he's like, you really can't do that with some of these teams this year. So, um, but I'm, I'm still, I want empirical evidence. So I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, the, I, I really like Utah. Like everybody's saying, who's going to be number four. I, I'm putting Utah at number four. Look, they are dogged on the lines they return a ton of guys. They've got a quarterback who might not be projected as a first-round pick, but he's won a lot of football games. He's old. I'm a believer in calloused. Like, if you've been around and lost and lost your job and transferred and had to go earn it, like, to me, that says something. Um, and they're talented. They've got an elite corner. They've got elite tight ends. And they're going to go to Gainesville, and they they should be able to outslug Florida, which is, which is saying something. Now – Look, Anthony Richardson, NFL scouts keep telling me he could be the number one pick in the draft. So, like, maybe he goes off and, you know, but then there's people in Florida tell me, like, let's wait for him to finish a game because he's been hurt so much. So, the, one of the great things about college football is we spend eight months and all these predictions and projections end up being crystallized. And then in one week, they just all get blown away. All these assumptions become, like, facts from the mountaintop. And then they just get absolutely obliterated, um, you know, in the first two weeks. And that's sort of the magic. The unpredictability of college football is the magic of it. Pete, my last question is way out of left field on this one. You and I, 10 years ago, were part of the Manti Teo story. Um, and I know that you and I talked a little bit during that. Sure. And, and the documentary came out. I haven't had a chance to see it in its entirety, but I've gotten a play-by-play from a lot of people 
I'm curious from your standpoint, did Manti Teo 10 years ago turn out to be the person that you thought he was all along? Interesting question. I have not seen the documentary yet either. Um, I've heard a little bit about it, not a, not a ton. Um, I thought Manti Teo was a good person just from my limited dealings with him. You obviously dealt with him day to day for years, Eric. Right. So you would have a better, a much better read, but like, and that's sort of, you know, the blessing and the curse of working for a magazine is you parachute in, you feel like you get a feel for somebody. You talk to a lot of people about them, but you don't really ever know them, you know? So like, you know, I, I thought Deshaun Watson was one of the great kids that I've ever covered, you know, when he was right. at Clemson and I went, you know, did a story on his family and how uh, that for humanity and wow, what a powerful, story. so you, you don't, you don't know. And the longer I've done this, the less I've tried to like be definitive about knowing about people. Does that make sense? Because yeah. you, you, you learn you don't know when you do it long enough. Pete, uh, as we mentioned, your, your Freeman story will be on uh, SportsCenter on Sunday. We'll also, if someone misses it and feels the need to wait another week for it, it'll be, it'll be a re-air on College Game Day, the, the day of the, the Notre Dame-Ohio State game. Uh, you will be contributing more to College Game Day this season. What are you looking forward to? in terms of the storytelling aspects that you can do on that platform? Oh, man, what an amazing platform. And uh, the, the Freeman story is exciting for me just because I've not really done like a full-form visual story. And one, one of the attractions after, you know, 25 years in print, various forms of print journalism was being able to go tell stories. And, I mean, ESPN has a lot of elite people who are great at what they do. Uh, they're storytellers. Uh, I'm working with a gentleman by the name of Mike O'Connor behind the scenes, the producer of the Freeman story. I mean, just like wondrously talented, right? And the, the level of detail and the resources they pour into telling these great stories. When you think back, like over the years, like Tom Rinaldi's Red Bandana story. And there, there's just some, some of the most, some of the best journalism that happens at ESPN happens under the game day umbrella and happens with, uh, with those storytellers. Uh, ben Weber's the, the story producer there. And, you know, I'm, I'm new, so I don't know what I don't know, but it, it's, so it's been really learning learning that world and, and seeing that world and how they just how the level of details I literally sat in my closet today reading tracks for an hour um, <laughs> I am not gonna yeah I'm not gonna get any voiceover work I've been I've basically been subtly told uh, but there's just uh just really how they drill down and, and do those and tell those is uh is exciting so despite my participation uh people should be excited about the Freeman story because it's in the hands of some of the best in the uh best in the business there uh, at ESPN and uh, and beyond. And as for the show itself, I mean, I'm, I'm buckled up, man. It's it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's definitely different than, uh, you know, I'm used to sitting next to you guys in the press box. So it's definitely a little, little bit of a different deal walking around with, you know, Kirk Herbstreet and Desmond Howard and, you know, uh, Reese Davis, uh, who I'm doing a podcast with now, is like the most unflappable man. Like uh, that guy gets out of bed and like hosts his toothbrush in the morning. He's just <laughs> like, he's just like so smooth. It's just like... Um, and it has such a great like love of the game, but also just a depth of knowledge from literally being at the most important college football game every week for for how long that how long he's done it. And so, yeah, it's it's been it's been energizing and, and, and fun to just see things from a little bit of a little bit of different perspective. Well, that's all we have for you, Pete. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us and we are looking forward to uh, watching your Marcus Freeman piece. Yeah, guys, thanks for uh, thinking of me, Tyler and Eric. I really, uh, I really appreciate it. All right, now it's time for questions. Our question segment is powered by AcrePro Midwest Farm Group. When it comes to land sales, it pays to have experts in your corner. AcrePro Midwest Farm Group are your local farmland specialists. With decades of experience in Indiana agriculture, 
no one knows the market better. Whether you're doing a 1031 exchange or simply buying and selling farmland, your local AcrePro agent will walk the land with you and ensure the deal is done right. Visit AcrePro.com or call 765-587-3185 and talk to your local land expert today. Again, 765-587-3185. You can submit questions to us on the Insider Lounge message board or on Twitter before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. First question I have for us, Eric, is from Drew Brennan, 77, on the Insider Lounge. As linebacker might be OSU's weakest position on defense, do you think Notre Dame will have more offensive sets with more tight end packages in order to make their linebackers play in space and defend against Mayer, Stays, Raritan, Bauman, and Barong? Well, I think regardless of whether that was a strength or not of Ohio State, I think that's something that Notre Dame thinks its strength is, is multiple tight end sets, given that Ohio State was able to be exploited uh, their linebackers last year. And, and this is a different season. They may have improved quite a bit and they have a new defensive coordinator. I I think strategically um, trying to get Notre Dame's tight ends lined up with a linebacker or their running backs would seem to make sense. But for me, I think the overall key offensively against Ohio State is balance. You know, if you can balance against them, it creates more gaps for your receivers and your tight ends. And that's what really gave them problems are games in which uh, the other team was able to balance and then they were able to run the ball at will and and keep the defense guessing. Yeah, I, I'm in agreement that that would probably be the case for Notre Dame, regardless of, of Ohio State's strengths or weaknesses. Um, I would add to, to not forget Davis Sherwood as a fullback slash tight end. I know we have a lot of Sherwood content <laughs> lately because he was just put on scholarship, but he has – played a role i've mentioned it a couple of times throughout camp i'm like hey this they're using him <laughs> uh repeatedly in different ways and so I, I i think uh he will i think notre dame will use him more as a blocker than a pass catcher but they will try to get um notre dame's running game in in advantageous situations against linebackers um and then also yeah if the, if the linebackers are preoccupied and worried about the running attack then it makes them even more vulnerable against tight ends or running backs in the passing game Next question is from OK underscore thanks on the Insider Lounge. Michigan was able to rush for 297 yards at seven yards per carry, didn't win the time of possession, lost the turnover battle, and still won by 15 points. With a really good O-line, some talented backs, and a quarterback that can run, will Notre Dame be able to run the ball early and often? And then he set a line of over under 230 yards on the ground. Uh, the early part of that, I'm not so sure. The often part, perhaps. Um, and the reason I say that, that even though Notre Dame played a Jim Knoll scheme uh, in this Fiesta Bowl against Oklahoma State, they didn't play against Jim Knowles. And you're looking at different personnel expressing that package, probably better athletes, definitely not uh, people that knew his system so well. So I think early on, there's going to be kind of a feeling out. I think Tommy Reese is going to have some surprises, too. Um, eventually I think Notre Dame is going to be able to run the ball. And again, I think balance is going to be the key here. I don't know that, you know, if you run for 297 yards and throw for 30, that that's going to be a winning combination. So Notre Dame is going to have to do something in the pass department. As far as the over and under, I'm actually going to go a little bit under. I think the goal needs to be 200 and I think they're going to get 
around there. Uh, but I don't think 230 is what they're going to end up with. Yeah, Notre Dame only rushed for more than 230 yards twice last season, given that was with a struggling offensive line, but also a pretty dynamic running back. Um, and Ohio State only allowed more than 230 yards twice last season, and their defense wasn't necessarily uh, a strong point either. So 230 yards is a lot of yards against a team of Ohio State's caliber. Um, so I will go slightly under um, because I, I expect Ohio State to challenge Notre Dame to throw the football. They are going to be well aware that Notre Dame wants to run the football. I think they will anticipate that knowing um, Notre Dame's potential weaknesses in the passing game. Um, and I think the fact that Jarrett Patterson is returning from a foot sprain, if he if he does return, I mean, we've seen him at, at uh, Wednesday's practice. He was walking with a walking boot, which is a progression from being wearing essentially a cast. I don't know exactly what it was, but it was like full foot to to upper shin um, protecting his, protecting his foot. So he was he. A lot of healing was seemingly required to get him in position to potentially practice next week and prepare to play. So even if he does play, it's hard to say that he's going to be his best. So I, I think Notre Dame's offensive line can certainly survive and isn't going to be a weakness if he isn't able to play or is playing at less than hundred percent. But I, I don't think um, the offensive line can be quite as dominant with that, without him out there. Next question is from Mike at KYND fan. Strength of the offense seems to be the run game. That said, what do you think the run slash pass balance will be? Well, in this game, I do think it's going to be pretty even for the season. I think there are some defenses later in the season where Notre Dame can't give up on the run, but they're going to have to win the game through the air. And I think Clemson is one of those games because Clemson's front seven is just so dominant that it's you're, you're not going to be able to sustained drives like you would against some other teams you're going to have to take some shots down the field so i again overall for for the year i think pretty balanced i think um in in some of those late october november games are going to have to be a little bit more pass oriented yeah i, I went back and looked at the last five seasons uh, in terms of what notre dame's run versus pass ratio was um and it, it varied and i think also i i need to say that these this is just based on like rushing attempts and passing attempts which is doesn't necessarily mean all the rushing attempts weren't some of those were passing plays like scrambles especially when Ian Book was at Notre Dame he would scramble plenty and so what started as a pass <laughs> ended up being a rushing attempt um but anyways I don't know that that skews it too much but but that does have to play so I'm not 100% sure on run versus pass play calls but anyways I'll stop rambling so last season they were just about 50% 50-50 uh, 2020 was 58-42 in favor of the running game. All the first numbers in this will be running game. 51 to 49 in 2019, uh, 56 to 44 in 2018, and then the highest of that time was 61 to 39 in 2017, which I don't think would be very surprising for anyone who knows those teams. Uh, so I, I would think this season probably looks most similar to the 2020 season, where it's sort of 58 run, 42 pass. Um, I, I think. Obviously, it's going to fluctuate depending on the opponent and, and Notre Dame's ability to run the ball, but I think they will be able to have success throughout the season running the ball. Um, and obviously, Tyler Buckner's ability to run uh, enhances that as well. Next question is from at NDF underscore Discord. 
more offensive snaps this season, walk-on or former walk-on wide receivers or quarterbacks not named Tyler Buckner? So uh, essentially this is Matt Salerno versus Drew Pine and Steve Angeli and Ron Paul's the third. So, um, you know, I think Matt Salerno is going to get some snaps. Uh, You know, Drew Pine may go games without taking any but I think there's probably going to be a game where he has to take a lot, whether it's a, you know, twisted ankle or, or whatever. And I think that Notre Dame is going to be very cognizant to get him into games when it makes sense to maybe it's a lopsided game. You pull Buckner earlier than maybe you would an Ian book or something just to get the number two quarterback in there and also decrease the risk on Tyler Buckner getting uh, an injury in a, 30 with a 30 point lead. So I'll go with the backup quarterbacks. Yeah, I went, I went with the walk on our former walk on receivers. I, I think I agree that Drew Pine will play some this season. Um, but I do think Matt Salerno is going to play, have offensive snaps in every game. Um, if he's the fourth or fifth most used wide receiver, he's probably due for around 200 snaps. Um, and for Drew Pine to match that, that would be a pretty prolonged absence for Tyler Buckner, whether it's, at the end of blowouts or uh, which, I mean, I, I guess it could, we, we, Notre Dame certainly has some teams on its schedule that it should be able to bro- blow out. Um, but I, I'm just not willing to go quite that far. Now, maybe Salerno snaps are lower than that. That was basically sort of what I looked at in terms of in between what Lorenzo styles and Deion Colsey had in terms of snap counts last season. Um, so I think 200 sounds right for Salerno given the situation, but but maybe it's less than that, and they 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 don't use a, a fourth or fifth wide receiver as much, um, given the given the limitations and and wanting to maybe use some of the running backs and tight ends more. Matt has done something a lot of the other wide receivers haven't been able to do. He's shown a ability to stay healthy. <laughs> yeah, availability, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, hopefully, we didn't just jinx him. So knock on wood for for Matt Salerno. Uh, next question is from Charles Wolf at Charles W. Wolf. Is Tyler Buckner the fastest quarterback Notre Dame has ever had? If numbers slash times don't go back far enough, please answer based on the eye test. Well, I can't even do the eye test with somebody like Angelo Bertelli. He may have been a burner. <laughs> I have no idea. Given human evolution, I'm guessing probably not. <laughs> yeah. So here's what I, I think I can tell you reasonably. Um, I've charted the 40 times at Pro Days and combines for all the Notre Dame quarterbacks dating back to Jimmy Clausen and and we can kind of do the eye test for people before that but here's what we know about Tyler Buckner's speed when he was between his freshman and sophomore year in high school at Notre Dame camp he ran a 4740 so that's kind of the baseline for him you would think over time as getting getting older and stronger he would also get faster the fastest 40 time run at a combine or a pro day from Jimmy Clausen on. So we're talking 2009-2010 draft. Um was, believe it or not, a four five nine by Ian Book. Um he would he would be the standard. So we could compare Book to Buckner. My my eye test says Buckner's faster. Um but Tyler may disagree with me as I look at his furrowed brow. Strangely, the next person there is Clawson at 476, which is stunning. I I do not believe that. And that happened <laughs> in a private workout 
And then the next person is Everett Golson at 482. And you have Kaiser slower than that, Cone, Zaire, and finally Reese in that group at 509. Now that one, I believe, although Tommy, when you look at him in practice, he looks more athletic at his age now. You you think I think he could outrun Clawson. Um, but some of those guys at the combines and the pro days did not practice the 40. They did not emphasize it. I'm sure Kaiser is a lot faster than that. Golson was totally unprepared for his pro day. Um, so I'm going to give, I'm going to push Buckner past book. So we got to go earlier than that. And if I'm looking at that, I really think the realistic person then is Carlisle holiday. Carlisle was a quarterback at the end of the Bob Davey era into the Tyrone Willingham era, and then was moved to wide receiver and was fast enough and good enough at that, that he played some in the NFL. Uh, I think, you know, maybe Arnez battle and Tony Rice would be, and Kevin McDougal maybe would be among the fastest that were in the time that I've been covering college football. Again, I can't speak to people, you know, way down in the ancient times when I was a teenager or something, but, um, you know, I, I think that's the best eye test statistical review that I can give you. Yeah. I mean, I think going far that far back, even if it was a running quarterback, they're, they're likely not faster than Tyler Buckner. Like I said, just sports evolution would right. indicate that guys playing now are generally faster than guys that play that far back. The asterisks here are two guys that were never timed in the 40 Dane Chris because of an injury and Brandon Wimbush because of the um, the pandemic, Brandon Wimbush looked pretty fast to me. So yeah, that, that, that was my answer. That was, that was what my yeah. furrowed brow was. I, I wasn't sure if you were going to remember to bring him up. Yeah. Uh, we just don't have time. I, I've asked Brandon what he would have run. And he, I go, can you run a four frame? He's like, oh yeah. So, I mean, we're kind of going on his thought, but when you look at, he looked really fast against every team, but Georgia. Um, so that I don't have the, the data to back that up. Yeah. I, I would believe in my eyes. And I mean, he ran a 10, eight in high school, um, yeah. in the 100. Um, and I just think his straight line speeds, but I think Tyler Buckner maybe maybe shiftier than Brandon Wimbush was. Um, but I think his sort of Brandon Wimbush's straight line speed, like if he really wanted to get going, he, he was moving. I, I'm not sure that I've seen that from Tyler Buckner yet. Now, granted, we haven't seen a lot of Tyler Buckner given his injury history. And uh, uh, obviously just being a freshman last year, I certainly he was running uh, when he was in there last year, but I don't know that he ever probably got to his maximum speed speed in any of those scenarios. So um, I, I would, I would give the nod to Brandon Wimbush, but certainly um, I think it'd be a pretty competitive race there. Yeah. Hendricks was a fat Andrew Hendricks is a faster quarterback too, but you don't, I mean, again, he wasn't a, pro guy and, and, and was a backup. All right. Next question is another one from okay. Underscore. Thanks on the inside lounge, which running backs get the most carries out of the backfield and which running back catches the most receptions. Well, in this game, I think Chris Tyree is who they're going to trust the most. Um, I'm, I would, I would imagine they'll take it a little bit easy on Logan Diggs' volume until they kind of see how he responds after the first game with, contact uh and for the season i i still think it'll be chris tyree who ends up there but i think it's going to be a lot more evenly distributed 
than a lot of years. I think Logan Diggs and Audric Estime will get quite a few carries. I, I don't know about Jabron Payne. I think maybe he shows up in the passing game a little bit more. Um, as far as receptions, I think it's Chris Tyree. I think he's their best receiver. Had Jadarian Price been uh, available this year, that would have been an interesting um, comparison because I think that those two have the express that skill set the best. So again, both within the Buckeye game and within the season, I'll say Chris Tyree there. Yeah, I I think predicting for the season who ends up to be get which running back has the most carries is probably one of the more difficult things to predict given the different options there. Um so I I, I think I, I'm probably getting too far ahead of myself, but my wild pick would be Audric Estime. I think he's really impressed this fall, and I think um Dylan McCullough's trust in him is at is at a high level um now certainly i i, I sort of understand it in the ohio state games like well do, how much do you really trust Andre Gestime? that's sort of the test um chris tyree's injury history is just so checkered that even if he's not necessarily missing time i don't know that he's always been as healthy as he wants to be and so it's hard for me to to sort of stick my neck out there and say yeah he's definitely going to lead the team in carries now certainly i think he's talented enough to um, but I, I need to see him sort of withstand the demands of, of being a lead running back before I do that. Now, maybe that's not fair. We haven't had the chance to see those other guys have to do it. But uh, but I, I so it maybe a little bit more of a blind faith. And Logan Diggs is the guy that's like, well, I don't know. He had a really good he had some really good moments last year. He's been out with the with the shoulder shoulder injury, but he's been practicing, I think. They certainly like him too. How, how limited will he be early on in the season? I think he's going to be as close to ready as possible, but uh, I'm not really sure how that all breaks down. I think uh, Audric. I think uh, I mean Chris Tyree is probably the most different in terms of speed, but I think Audric might be maybe is the most well-rounded, which is kind of surprising to me. I wouldn't have guessed that, but we've seen him do so many different things, and um, certainly he's adamant that he can do everything and. And Dylan McCullough has been pretty adamant that he can do everything as well. So I'm I'm very interested to see what kind of season he has um, because uh, he's been one of the bigger and surprises uh, of preseason camp, in my opinion. And then recept, I, I'm in agreement with receptions. I think it's Chris Tyree. I would be a bit stunned if it, if it didn't end up being him. Next question is from Christopher Cruz at Chris ND 92. Who could have predicted an injury at wide receiver sometime this season? Why didn't Notre Dame move Xavier Watts to wide receiver in the spring? Or does this have to do with which wide receiver got injured? Well, it has to do with Xavier Watts, and it has to do with the timing of Joe Wilkins' injury and and the fact that it was Avery Davis who was the guy that uh, is out for the season. Um, at the Going into the spring, Marcus Freeman came up to – Xavier Watson asked him if he wanted to go back to wide receiver. And he said, it's totally your choice. We're good. What, whatever you want to do here. And he chose safety. He said, you know, he felt like he had invested a lot in that, that he had felt like he was making a lot of progress. He enjoyed it. And he didn't know that he was necessarily helping the team. You know, he felt like at safety, he was needed and wanted. Yep. At wide receiver, he was a safety net. So that was his choice. Um, Wilkins got injured fairly later in the spring practices. And I remember talking to Marcus this summer. I mean, I think they would have been more active in the transfer portal earlier and had maybe more options 
had Wilkins gotten hurt, let's say, in a winter workout in February. That was the implication that M Marcus gave me. Uh, and so then they get, you know, they go through the summer, and I suppose they could have tried to get Xavier to move to wide receiver, you know, at fall camp. But, you know, Avery, the timing of Avery's injury then prompted them to have to do something. And the best solution and the one that was unselfish was Xavier Watts to do both positions. Um, so that's where they are with it. But again, had it been, let's say it had been where there's, I guess it had Matt Salerno gotten hurt in the spring and had the foot injury, uh, maybe there wouldn't be the urgence as much urgency with Xavier Watts, but I mean, you need every one of those guys at this point, you know, you can't be picky about who's getting injured, but you know, Avery was a starter. So right. you're, you're asking a guy to share a position or move based on replacing or, or helping out losing a starter versus just saying, Hey, we need more depth. We need you to be number nine receiver. Yeah. I, I think it's a culmination of all those things. And then it's, I, I think it also had, in my opinion, is connected to Deion Colsey being limited with a sprained knee and Jaden Thomas dealing with a hamstring issue throughout camp. You, you, your list of even healthy receivers or hopefully available receivers are guys that are, have been dealing with some issues as well. Now, maybe they're not serious in keeping them sidelined for a long time, but I think I think it's all of that that led to Xavier Watts being moved rather than just the fact that Avery Davis went right. down. If Avery Davis goes down and those guys didn't have any issues, Deion Colsey wasn't limited – Jaden Thomas hadn't been missing some practices and, and and Joe Wilkins isn't coming off a foot injury where we've seen re-injuries occur, then maybe that position switch doesn't happen. But I certainly understand why people thought Xavier Watts should have switched earlier and people want to see Xavier Watts play wide receiver because um, there's a chance he could make as much of an impact this season at that position than he would at, at the safety position because safety for the first time in a while is a position with depth. Um, that I think uh, uh, it, it was a bit of a tough situation. And if, if, if Xavier feels more comfortable to, at safety at some time, like you have to commit to something and it's, it's not good for a kid to be moving back and forth all the time. Um, so I think, uh, I mean, that's, I mean, if we look at Avery Davis, for instance, he finally blossomed once he was stuck, like they left him at receiver, they left him alone. They quit moving him around. He was able to develop in that position where he needed to be. Um, and so I would anticipate Xavier Watts being able to do that once he's able to settle into a position and he just really hasn't been able to so far. Next question is from Nathan Reynolds at enforcers 2117. How confident are you in the field goal kicking and special teams as a whole? I'm confident in the special teams as a whole, because I think Brian Mason is really, really good. He's, he's got very interesting theories about special teams I like the way that he has a run of the entire roster if he wants it. Um, and he's got a track record of, at Cincinnati. I mean, it wasn't just Cincinnati had a great year last year. They had four really good years with Brian Mason. As far as the specialist kicking, I, I'm i more confident because Blake Groupie and John Sott are veterans. They've done it. Now, not at Notre Dame, but they've done it at their previous schools. And I like the talent of uh, McPherson, Bryce McPherson. And I think eventually he's going to be an elite punter at Notre Dame. Um, again, some of it was getting rattled with 
noise and so forth. I mean, he went to a school where there were like four people in the stands in the <laughs> high school games. So, but I mean, amazing athlete, state champion wrestler, state finalist and long jump and, and triple jump. Um, so I think they're in good hands there. They've got some depth if there's an injury. So I like it, you know, well, Blake groupie be great in the Ohio state game. If it's a 51 yarder to win the game and they're down two, I don't know, but I think over the long run of the season, he'll be pretty good. Yeah. I, I think he still has to prove it a little bit to me just because we haven't seen a, a lot of him having success. I mean, we saw some shakiness in the spring though. It, it's worth pointing out that that was with a holder that he's no longer using. That was, uh, I believe it was Chris Salerno was holding and now John Sott has become a holder and John uh, was a holder at Harvard as a, as a senior. Um, so they've been able to get on the same page with that. Um, I'm not super concerned thinking that he'll be bad, but I think he could be a bit average and the length is a little bit of a concern. Um, but I, I just haven't seen enough to be confident that he's definitely going to be good or great. I think, uh, I think, I don't think he's going to be a huge concern, but we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, it's a little bit of an unknown there. Um, in terms of the broader special teams, I'm excited about what, what Brian Mason is doing. I think the return game should be more dynamic. Um, I'm very interested to see Brandon Joseph returning punts. Um, the coverage unit sh should be sound and, and, uh, I'm in agreement that Brian Mason seems to bring a lot of energy to the position. Um, a lot of ideas to the position. Um, and he's pretty good at expressing them when talking to the media. I think after he spoke with us the other day, everyone's like, man, I, I really like talking to him. So uh, it's uh, um, there's, there's reasons to be optimistic about Notre Dame special teams, even though that they have big shoes to fill with, with Jonathan door and Jay Bramblett um, no longer on the team as the field goal kicker and punter. All right. Next question I have for us, Eric is from Chris Scheiber at Scheibe 43. Am I crazy to think that losing to Oklahoma State was better for the program than a win a win heading into next Saturday? Freeman learned some lessons about time management, don't score quickly at the end of the second quarter, and the adversity avalanche in the second half. Better that the first time was in Phoenix, not Columbus. What do you think, Eric? I will not do an uh, insanity diagnosis. Um, I think you're really optimistic and a really positive person, and the kind of person I'd like to live next door to. <laughs> I'm not sure that there it is a positive that that happened. I think they could have won the game, you know, come back and won the game at the end and still learn the same lessons. But uh, I, I like your spin on things. I think Marcus would appreciate that. Here, here's kind of how I look at the Oklahoma State game too. I don't think it was a true test run of who Marcus Freeman is as a head coach. The priority in the days leading up to that game was to preserve the recruiting class. And they largely did that with the exception of a couple wide receivers who they certainly could use um, a couple wide receivers jumping out of the class at the 11th hour. And then he did not have really a whole staff put together. People were in new roles um, and Oklahoma state had a little bit of that on their side. They didn't have their defensive coordinator, but uh, all in all, I just don't think it, I think there were some lessons learned, but I don't think it was a good litmus test, which wasn't your question. Your question is, are you crazy? I will say you are not crazy because you're listening to our podcast. <laughs> I appreciate you getting back to the main question there. Was, is he crazy? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can sort of buy into the concept. I, I mean, even some guys like Isaiah Foskey have talked about returning because they didn't want their careers to end because of the way the Fiesta Bowl played out. So 
Now, now I don't know. Maybe he still would have returned, and that's an easy, easy thing to point to um, after that. But I mean, from my perspective, I don't, I don't think the outcome of that game influences how I feel about this team. Um, so if it offered some teaching moments, I think that's certainly a positive. But you can certainly learn things from a win too. Um, if if Notre Dame is able to maybe score one more time in that in that second half, then. I think you still learn the lessons about the way the defense performed in the second half and uh, maybe putting yourself in a better position and not have to, to, to essentially come back after giving up a lead. So um, I think uh, regardless, there were probably going to be lessons that, that Marcus Freeman was going to take away from that game. But I, I certainly like winning in a blowout probably wouldn't have provided the same kinds of lessons as it, as it would have uh, losing the way that Notre Dame did. Next question is from RP McMurphy. On the Insider Lounge, any more insight into Maris Leofau's status heading into week zero? Unless I call Miss Cleo, I don't think I'm going to get more um, insight into it. You know, we've talked to Marcus Freeman about it. We've talked to assistant coaches about it. I've even had a short conversation with Marist about it. Uh, Marist and I did a pretty long interview in July that I've been eager to write, but I the premise of it is going to be him being healthy. <laughs> and, you know, as I, I mean, people's actions speak pretty loudly. And I know that they said they've dialed his activity back in practice, but there's some practices where you're just scratching your head and saying, you know, shouldn't he be a little bit more active today? Now in Wednesday's practice and we're, they're practicing in the late afternoon. Now um, he was present in all the drills but we're not seeing a lot of hard contact in those drills either. Um, we This being taped Thursday before practice, you know, we'll ha- I'll have a practice report later today that you can check out, and I'll, I'll have my eye on what Marist is doing today uh, because this is the last time I'll have a chance to do it. <laughs> we're, we're out of practice the rest of the season. Um, so, again, I mean, he he was healthy enough to play, you know, basketball with his girlfriend, Sonia Citrone, you know, early in the <laughs> summer before she got a leg injury. Uh, and, and she, I'll leave it to my story to tell how that game went, but uh, it just seems odd that there's so much caution in August without there being maybe some complications, but Marcus looked or Maris looked me in the eye and said that he felt like he was going to be a hundred percent healthy at Ohio state. So I don't know if that's optimism or that's real medical knowledge. Yeah. It, it's, it's been very strange. And I, I mean, the fact that like you alluded to, we've been holding on to this story that you haven't right. And obviously you have to take the time to write it still as well, but okay. we've been holding on to it because we're like, well, we don't, we're not really sure what's going on. Are we going to look like idiots coming out with this story about how Maris Leifau's the next big thing? And he's, <laughs> we don't see him doing much of practice and what's going on. I don't, I don't know if they're, messing with us and, and showing him less. I mean, that seems a little bit absurd, but I mean, they have been pretty protective of what we've been able to see this, this, uh, this preseason. I, I, I he's been doing more and more recently. I, be, I believe I, I've heard that he was pretty active in the scrimmage that they had last week. Um, and that's full contact. So um, what, well, well, I mean, we're just going to have to wait and see. I don't know that they're going to give away anything and they, uh, in terms of what, what his availability is and what his limitations are. I mean, I, I certainly believe that Notre Dame's defense is much better having him available and using his unique skill set um, because I don't know that they have anyone else like him. 
um, right now in the linebacker room that's at least experienced enough to be able to to take advantage of their skill sets. I think some of those young guys could eventually get there, but um, I don't know that they're they're ready yet. So we'll have to see. The the one thing we don't know is how Marcus deals with injuries publicly still, you right. know, and and his intentionality about it is he just not is he an optimistic person? For example, Joe Wilkins in the spring, we saw Joe get hurt in that practice. Right. We're, we're pretty confident that this is a very minor thing. And then it turns out to be a break that right. takes months of healing. So I don't think he did that intentionally, but he may not have a great read on some of these situations. Yeah. And we're, and we're learning like, how much is he looking out for guys and being precaut? I like versus like Jaden Thomas too. Like he's missed some time and, he hasn't seemed to be very concerned about that. Is that just, are they just protecting him? Is he actually limited? Like, well, because their numbers are 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 dwindling at the receiver position, are they just being precautions? I, I, we're sort of learning like how his. Now, obviously, the training staff is pretty much the same, so I don't know that that obviously their impact. Now, maybe he gives them more freedom to to do that, or he, he invites them to maybe to limit guys more i don't really know we're sort of learning that as we go here that's one of the things you learn about a, a head coach how he sort of handles those those things and um i don't think many people would think about that like what do you need to learn about a head coach but that is one of those things that i think we're we're still trying to get a feel for next question is from marie biafore at biafore underscore marie omitting ohio state clemson byu and usc which other game do you consider a trap game and taking into consideration the schedule and Notre Dame's rosters for the 2022, 23, and 24 seasons, which year do you think sets up the best for Notre Dame to win a national championship and why? Well, let's do the um, trap game first, and then we'll go back to the second part of the question. Um, I think the trap game is North Carolina at the end of the month. Um, and I think the reason I say that is North Carolina can be sneaky good and sneaky bad. They have a really good roster. Uh, they have a new quarterback, but he's, from everything I understand, he's pretty good. They had a uh, difficult injury with a starting running back. Uh, but you you look at the players on their team and you think they should be better than they are. And, and in some games they are, and in some games they just find a way to lose. So I wouldn't write them off, especially if Notre Dame – were to come out of the Ohio State game with a win, I think that North Carolina game becomes a little bit more of a trap. Yeah, and Pete spoke spoke to that. He's like, you never know in North Carolina, they could be a three-win team or a nine-win team. Yeah, the, the, the variance there it can be wide. Uh, Boston College has been the team that I've looked at for that. Uh, I, obviously, there's some Notre Dame ties there, and Phil Dracovic will be very motivated to try and to win at Notre Dame on senior day. Um and that that's sort of the game that I've circled. I, it's hard to be, it, it feels sort of hard to be a trap game that late in the season, but um, that's the one that I've circled. Well, and it, it is always a lot of times Notre Dame has had trouble going back from Navy to a traditional offense the next week. There's been a little bit of a struggle there. Right. So. And then to, to Marie's question about national championship, uh, chances what which season and roster do you think that Notre Dame has the best of those three that she offered well I think when you look at um, just some certain elements of the team this team has a lot of veterans to it they don't have a veteran coach but they have a lot of veterans to it and uh, and nine of the last 14 national championships have been won by first-year starters at quarterback 
now is Tyler Buckner, the Tyler Buckner that Tommy Reese saw in a camp as a ninth grader and thought, wow, this guy's got a high ceiling because Buckner's pretty much probably going to be the quarterback in each of those seasons. Right. At least that's how it lines up right now. Then you kind of look at the supporting cast and uh, um, you start to see skill positions get way better. I think the thing that you don't like about 23 and 24 is there's no Keon Keeley on that team and there's no real obvious heir apparent to Isaiah Foskey. I mean, Jordan Batello could kind of turn out to be somebody like that. I don't, I don't know that that's his skill set entirely, you know, maybe Aiden Gobira develops. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Joshua Burnham becomes that. Yeah. And it, you, you don't know, but you're counting on a developmental path, which I've, Isaiah Foskey also took. I mean, he yeah, wasn't he wasn't necessarily, yeah, right, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't a Keon Keeley type prospect. But, in, but in, I would have felt better if Keon was on that team. Sure. Uh, as far as pieces, you look at, you know, their cornerbacks are going to get better. Their linebackers are going to get way more athletic. You know, the offensive line is going to be good. So you have to kind of take into account the schedule. You're going to have Ohio State, Clemson, and USC all next year as well, just in the different, the reverse venues. In 24, you lose Clemson and Ohio State, and you gain Texas A&M. And I don't think the schedule is as difficult in 24. So if I had to bet, I guess I would say 2024. But I wouldn't rule it out for any of these teams but they're going to have to overachieve uh to to win so would the 2024 team because alabama and georgia aren't going anywhere right yeah i i think the i'm gonna agree that i picked 2024 based on sort of the influx of talent that will be on that roster which which will entail the the current recruiting class being able to develop into being ready to make big impacts and um i think the schedule is slightly easier as well it's I mean, a lot comes back to the quarterback. I mean, that's why we felt that Notre Dame hasn't been able to win a national championship because they haven't had a national championship caliber quarterback. Um, now, that's not the only reason, but I think that's the biggest reason. Um, so if Tyler Buckner is great, then maybe they can do it in 2023. Um, and if he is great, then he's probably not back in 24. <laughs> uh, so um, and then, and if he's not back in 24, who is the quarterback? Is it? Steve Angeli by default is it a freshman CJ Carr I think that's part of the reason I think getting a 2023 quarterback is paramount because you don't want to have like the best talent you have on your roster and then this big giant question mark at quarterback because you you missed on on signing a 2023 quarterback and obviously the transfer portal is an option there but it's hard to it's hard to sort of predict what your availability and fit will be there um a couple of years down the road so um that's how I look at it, but um, I mean, if, if Tyler Buckner is great right away, I mean, there's no reason that this year should be that different, other than sort of the skill position talent that we think will be surrounding him by the time that that he gets to later in his career. Next question is from Hen Henry Bead at Henry Bead. Notre Dame's NIL collective pays current Notre Dame players to perform charity work. What is the ethical difference between that and an agreement with a prospective player to conduct an identical exchange in the future? Be, the difference is that NIL, as the rule is written, isn't supposed to be an inducement for, for players to come. So if you are providing a guarantee 
that that's the difference that Notre Dame says here here's all the things that we have these are going to be available to you but you're not you're not signing up for that as a prospect as a condition of signing with that school and also a lot of these um where you've gone past the gray area into the no-no area is there's no exchange. There's no doing charity work. You're getting cash for signing with the team and you can call it NIL, but you're not doing anything to earn it. So that's really where the reality is with a lot of the ones that uh, people are saying that are illegal, that they've crossed the line with. But, but even in the, in the way that you pose the question, that's the difference. It's the guarantee instead of, oh, this is an opportunity that I'll have when I'm at Notre Dame. Yeah, and I'm still uh, – <laughs> the numbers that thrown around as guarantees, it's like, well, <laughs> what's what's guaranteeing that that money actually exchanges in that way that it's being allegedly promised? I, I, I don't know. I'm a little bit skeptical that all these things are going to go s- smoothly and every, there's not going to be any issues between uh, – shadowy boosters and uh high school prospects if if their career doesn't turn out the right way or something like that so um but yeah the the, the ethical difference is just an nca rule difference the 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 latter being a, a promise of money once you come to notre dame is, is an nca violation as as it currently stands and notre dame does not feel comfortable pushing that envelope i mean uh if you follow social media most players of the big sports, whether it's women's basketball, men's basketball, um, football, a lot of those kids are doing charity work, and that is connected to Notre Dame's fun collective. And and it's important to say it's not Notre Dame's collective; it's the it's the boosters that are supporting Notre Dame students. So it, there is a difference there. Um, Notre Dame is certainly, I imagine, it, influencing and, and guiding. Like this is what we're comfortable with, and this is what we're not comfortable with. But uh, because I think there's probably not a lot of Notre Dame boosters or fans that want to do something that the university isn't isn't in support of, because then that that could have repercussions in the long in the long run. Next question is from RRH1 on the Insider Lounge with Brian Dowd officially on the soccer and football team. Can you remember the last athlete to play two overlapping sports at Notre Dame? I went by memory. I didn't research this a lot and. And we're not counting like baseball and spring football. We're talking about in-season people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there there have been football players that have played on the basketball team, but usually not until after January 1st, like John Carlson, tight end, uh, was a guy that did that. Uh, I'm trying to remember Joe Howard, uh, Joe Howard's routine, because Joe was not a scrub on the basketball team. He was a starter on their basketball team and a really good wide receiver on the football team. But I don't remember exactly how much, how that overlap worked with him. Um, You know, Shane Walton was a soccer player that came out for football, but he did it in the spring, I believe. So he never overlapped there. I mean, when you go back into the, like the early 1900s, there are a lot of them that were track and baseball. Um, But I can't think, I know one person that wanted to do it, um, Bob Davey, I can't remember which year it was, was really having trouble with kickers. And it might've been right before uh, Shane Walton came on the team because he thought Shane Walton was a kicker coming from the soccer team initially. 
but Jenny Grubb from the women's soccer team wanted to try out for the kicker and Bob Davey wasn't, you know, really warm to that idea, but she would have been willing to play women's soccer and football. So I'm going to see if Tyler has a better answer. <laughs> I do not. I think this is the second time RRH1 has asked us about Brian Dowd. So I'm starting to wonder if there's a relation <laughs> there because I don't know that we've ever mentioned a third string punter twice in the same month on this podcast. Uh, so congratulations to Brian Dowd for, for meeting that uh, standard. Um, his impact on the soccer team will be much greater than the football team. I'm not, I'm not even sure how available he will be for football. He was off the roster for a bit and then he's back on. I'd be, I'm not expecting to see him punting in a game. Um, so, but in terms of like history of, of two sport athletes at the same time, I don't know. Like there have been some lacrosse players that played football. Um, I remember Joey Brooks came out for the football team, but I I think that was after basketball season. Um, I, I, there aren't, I I can't think of anyone that had a direct overlap in the same season, uh, at least in my time covering Notre Dame. And I, I, it would take a lot of research for me to find someone from, from before that, that time. Next question is from at Mr. Joe Seiler, all nonsense aside, which position group has been the most fun to interview this year? The defensive backs had some good ones. So did the running backs. What do you think? I think um, if you, I mean, when I interviewed Tyler Buckner by himself, he was amazing Um, in a bigger group uh, with questions coming and and some weird ones too. And probably some from me. um, It's not quite the enjoyable experience that it is one-on-one. Drew Pine was awesome. So the quarterbacks would be up there. But I'm going to say overall as a group, the running backs, I think uh, Logan Diggs is just amazingly open. Audric Estime is a funny guy. Um, you know, Chris Tyree's very insightful. I didn't get a chance to interview Jabron, but Tyler did. And Delon McCullough, <laughs> he's uh, he's lively, man. He, he cracks me up. So I, I'm going to give the nod to the running backs. Yeah, I think the running backs are are the the top of the board there as well. Um, we when we're doing the so if if you follow you like Notre Dame's YouTube, you'll see videos of interviews, but those aren't the ones that us as print reporters are doing. We do interviews upstairs when downstairs some of the the TV crews and the camera folks have them on camera. Um, so I think a lot of times we get a, maybe a little bit looser, but they're also like more than one interview happening at one time, and so. If you're if you're not talking to Audrey Estime, you can still hear him because he's pretty he's pretty boisterous and laughing and having a good time. And uh I understand that Logan Diggs was was a pretty fun interview as well. Um yeah, Jabron Payne w- was good to talk to. Uh he was a little bit more low-key, but he was he was very honest with uh with what he's talking about. Yeah, and, and Dylan McCullough is, is is fun to interview as well. I, I enjoy talking to the safeties if we're giving some other positions some love. Um Brandon Joseph was good to talk to. Ramon Henderson's good to talk to. Um I even like Xavier talking to Watts. Xavier Watts. Uh, yeah, because we, we can still consider him a safety in some ways. Uh, Houston Griffith is always a, always a good interview. Um, and uh, even DJ Brown has had, has done some insightful things during his time. And I'm always a I'm always a sucker for the offensive line, and I have to, to give them s- some well, love as well. The only way reason we didn't give them more love is they only bring up Jarrett Patterson, and Josh Lug. Yeah, they they didn't give. I love those guys. I love interviewing those guys. But give me some Blake Fisher. Give me give me some Joe Alt. 
yeah, they didn't give us the love. And I, I, I if I had to guess, that that's probably a little bit of a Harry Heastan influence. He probably didn't want his 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 star sophomores coming out and talking to us. But well, maybe I'm assuming incorrectly. I know that offensive line is pretty protective of its of being a unit. Um, even uh, I don't know if we've discussed this at all, but when they've been walking to practice, when reporters are at practice, they they sort of form this like giant. They sort of always like walk over together, which I think is intentional. But but they've been sort of hiding Jarrett Patterson in the middle of this pack, so we can't like get photos of him like on his scooter, injured or, or walking in a in a in a boot. Uh, so I I think uh, the offensive line likes to th- keep things close to the vest. But when you're actually talking to them, uh, Josh Lug I think is one of the better interviews on the team. He's very he's very thoughtful and considerate of the questions that you ask him, and very open about what he's what he's doing in a game and the challenges that he has and stuff like that. So I've always always enjoyed interviewing him. And if Rocco Spindler ever gets to be a starter, and I think next year is the year, we had him on our podcast. He was yeah. a riot. Yeah, yeah, Rocco, Rocco will be fun. Uh, and so, yeah, I think we're all hopeful that we, we get some Rocco Spindler access in the future. All right, our last question is from at Bridget Go Irish. Who is your favorite person on ND Twitter? Well, I would say Tyler James. <laughs> uh, but short of that... I'm going to go with Mike Golick Jr. because he's a mixture of funny and he's got insightful stuff. Um, you know, the whole mayonnaise thing uh, with the Duke Mayo Bowl and stuff was hilarious. I, I just think he's uh, he's got a really good Twitter game. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was too unfair to pick just one. And, and uh, I, I've enjoyed interacting with a lot of Notre Dame fans on Twitter, so... Um, I wanted to give a number of different shout outs. Uh, I think a, a lot of different people have sort of their own niche that that are kind of cool and, and neat to follow. I, I tend to agree that I like the ones that uh, don't take themselves too seriously and like to have some fun um, from time to time. I try to even follow different fans and a number of them are usually connected to uh, some of the different Notre Dame blogs that have reached out and stuff like that. Uh, the first two I have to shout out have sent us food. Uh, Jude. Uh, at NDJRS, he's not only treated us with voodoo donuts when we were in Austin, Texas, but he also supplied a Portillo's cake when we were furloughed at the South Bend Tribune in 2020. Um, HLS underscore Bayou Irish, who I've lost connection with. I'm not sure he's not on Twitter anymore, to my knowledge. He once sent us a king cake for Mardi Gras back at the South Bend Tribune, and that was that was great. Um, just gonna stay get the baby. I don't recall who got the baby. Okay. That that, that probably was probably right. That, that sounds like something Mike would would do. Uh, Jessica Smetana is a two time podcast guest. Uh, she would be near the top of the list. Um, Bridget herself deserves some recognition for her design work and memes. I still have a uh, Brady Quinn for the booth pin that she designed some years ago. Uh, Brendan at Very Piratey is a Photoshop wizard who is good for some laughs. I think uh, I think everyone enjoys his work from time to time. Uh, my, my favorite being the where we were the people on the judges on the voice and Carter was Kelly Clarkson. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chris at Rick Amalo has had me on his podcast, probably more than anyone else on any Twitter. So I have to give him a shout out. Um, that's probably all the ones that I could come up with without off the top of my head. That's certainly not a comprehensive list, but I, I appreciate the contributions from many Notre Dame fans. Even if I don't follow you, I'm very cognizant of the folks who interact with my tweets and like to have fun on Twitter. So um, I, I, I think that sort of was one way I sort of 
got into the beat that I was pretty active on Twitter and uh, grew a following that way and enjoyed sort of interacting with fans and doing different things with them. Um, and there can be times where you don't want to hear from fans, uh, particularly when things are going poorly on the field. And usually the worst are like in the first quarter when people are overreacting. But uh, I, I, uh, I overall, I've, I've enjoyed the experience of uh, interacting with Notre Dame fans on Twitter and uh, hope uh, there's plenty of more funny things ahead. And, and also, even though I shouted out people who sent us food, I'm not I'm not asking for more food to be to be sent for us. <laughs> Although we will not turn it down. <laughs> All right, that's it for today's episode of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with your dentist. We'll be back next week, game week, to preview Notre Dame season opener at Ohio State. Until then, stick with InsideNDSports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs. (laughs) 